Hello, and you are most welcome to episode 182 of the Game Pit Podcast. My name's Ronan, joining you from my wet and soggy West London in the UK, and this is a podcast about modern tabletop gaming, and this episode is a picking over the bones episode in which I'm going to be picking over the bones, reviewing and pulling apart seven games which have been hitting my table recently. And we will pile straight in with a huge Kickstarter release, Burn Cycle, designed by Josh J. Carlson, Shannon Wedge, publishers Chip Theory Games, 1-4 players, listed playtime, 45 to only 180 minutes, we'll get to that. What's Burn Cycle all about? Well, it's a huge heavy box, let me tell you that for starters. And the players are going to cooperatively lead a team of robots to infiltrate human corporations. There's a whole background about there was a robot uprising and then the humans took back over again. And apparently the humans are now evil. Well, from the robot's point of view anyway. And each person's going to have their own robot. And then there's going to be like a command module robot as well. And which you're able to do things with and you must look after through the course of the missions. Because each game is a mission in which you have a set objective. And you're going to be going around spatially, moving around, trying to do various things in order to complete the mission. Before either of the lost conditions occur. The whole thing is a spatial puzzle in which you're going to move around. There are going to be guards of different levels who are going to be moving around, including a captain attempting to capture you and shock you and drain all your energy. You're going to infiltrate these corporations. There are doors you're going to need to open. There are terminals you're going to need to access. And then you're going to... It depends because the missions come between one to three different levels with different maps that you set up. And... If there's more than one level in your particular mission, you're going to have to uh, advance and get basically get to the lifts or the stairs. Once you've done everything on one level, everyone needs to get to an, an area where you can go up to the next level and so on until you get to whatever your final level is. There are very varied objectives which you need to complete, but they'll all be set around those basic actions of moving around, opening doors, accessing terminals, being in certain places at certain times. There are sometimes equipment you have to pick up, things like this. It's basically about moving around and not getting caught. You lose, however, by losing your command bot, which is that robot I mentioned, which is controlled by everyone, and you all have to work together to look after, or the threat level of the corporation realising they're being infiltrated goes up and up as the game goes on. You're going to have to manage that because if that gets too high, that is also an auto loss. Physically, in terms of these different maps you're going around, it is a bunch, a whole bunch of neoprene mats in which you've got one big one you lay out and there are smaller ones represent different types of rooms. They're clear, it's easy to set up, changing from one level to the next takes less than five minutes you just take them all down put them all back out again that all works fine then you have to place some gems because gems show that rooms are unexplored when you go in you roll a die and certain things happen you have to adapt to that there are chips that you put out if you know anything about chip theory games chip being in the name of them they have these lovely calling them poker chips sometimes gives the wrong impression but it's hard to find another way to describe them if you've had the clays maybe from roxley games they're like they're not quite as fancy as those but they're nice thick chips and they represent the terminals and the robots and the guards and stuff so you need to put them on wherever you're told to in that particular scenario and then it's a case of looking at that layout looking at what you've got to do looking at the guards how they're going to move they're moving various ways 
looking at what the plan is, making a plan together, and taking into account your powers. And I've said each of you gets a robot mapped. And on there, there are various bits of information as you'd expect. You have a power level. Power can be used to give yourself unlockable powers or actions or to increase the reserve so you can keep going in between having to reboot this whole burn cycle thing. We'll get more of an idea of what a round looks like, but only an idea, it, there's a lot to the game. But power level is also your health, and it's if your power ever drops to zero or the command bots ever drops to zero, then you start getting into trouble. You can also spend your power as you gain it for doing various things in the game on more action dice, because it's the action dice that drive the actions that you choose to take. And every time you choose to take an action, you're going to move, you're going to unlock doors, you're going to access terminals. Now, at the beginning of each round, a chip is drawn from a bag, and one of them is like a, a bad chip, and the other ones, you start adding to it, basically, of trying to put together a sequence of actions in which certain actions are optimised, so that when you do them, you get a bonus for doing them, like you get an extra network card, which is a whole other part of the game we'll talk about in a second. You could choose two options to access the terminal rather than just one or things like that. And again, your own special powers, you'll be able to unlock things like that, which will make you more powerful if you ever do encounter a guard or make you move quicker or make you ignore certain rules within the game. And it's how all of this interlocks together is going to have you making tactical decisions all the time alongside the strategy of overall, how do we follow out our plan to get through this particular level? And as I say, one to three levels for each mission. Now these action chips get laid out and it can cost power to get more available to you so you have more actions before it's the end of, of a round and, and you go through the, uh, the captain having a go and things like that. And also, after you've done your actions, you get to do network actions according to what chips have been laid out for this round structure. Now network actions means that <laughs> there's a whole nother separate board and it's concentric circles with links between them, a little bit sort of like an old-fashioned circular labyrinth. And you move around clockwise, and you can move in and out of different levels. And where you end on can trigger these network cards you can collect via other actions and give you special powers, but also can have effects within themselves. And the corporation you're infiltrating will be sending out these pings to try and catch you and try and make it all the way back to your base. And you've got to try to intercept them but try and make sure that your strength in this network is strong enough that when you do intercept them it goes well for you and that's a whole nother thing you're thinking about as you're laying out what actions and what plans and what chips you're using from your reserve in order to set up the round to make it work for you as i said the threat level is constantly counting down as well as being a way in which you can lose the game it also activates enemy powers or events or effects for them and generally makes things tougher for you the higher the threat level gets as you'd expect once you've got to a point where there's too many useless chips within this round structure, it happens, you then do a reboot and then the whole burn cycle sort of gets cleared away. You get to get more chips back into your reserve and then nothing major happens. You just carry on playing the game. You just keep rolling through, but it's just a way that you can then reset things and there's small resets throughout the game at points in which the players have a lot of control over when that's going to happen. As a product... Burn Cycle is physically very, very impressive. As you'd expect, Chip Theory Games have got an incredible reputation for making high-level products. It comes through Burn Cycle entirely. At times, there are things that are a little fiddly, but actually with a game of this complexity, I think they've done very well to make it not too fiddly physically and to use clever use of components and try and make things very clear as to what 
each thing does and how a guard moves. Now, they've got to think about it. Each of these robots have got different powers. And in fact, the same robots you use as your player robots can be the command bot, which flips them over. And they have a different set of powers as well. And then you have all these other powers flying off in the game and... Depending on which corporation you're going into, their threat level has different effects and different captains have different effects and there's a lot going on. So trying to make that all work within a structure without having loads and loads of exceptions to rules and without having to use too many different components, I think it's been very impressive the way they did it. That being said, Burn Cycle is very difficult to learn. Now, this comes with the territory. This isn't like it's a 10 minute card game that's very difficult to learn. When it says the playtime goes up to 180 minutes, well, I've heard of games going up to eight hours. When you know a game goes to eight hours, I think you expect to have to put some effort into learning it. The rulebook itself has been done as a walkthrough style rulebook, which is not how I would choose for it to be done. It can be used for reference. It's not terrible for that. But I would rather just have a rule book. And then if you're going to include reference in there, then sure, by all means, just put that on the side. And uh, we can go to it. And in fact, they've released sort of more of the walkthrough online, which is a really good effort by them because people clearly enjoy learning via that method. I would just like to have both available rather than having to go through the walkthrough the first few times you play in order to double check rules because it takes a while for it all to stick. I mean, there are loads of videos available. They've done videos themselves. They've put every effort into it. It just is difficult to learn. The thing with a co-op that's got lots of rules and difficult to learn, it's hard to know that you are playing correctly. And with all of the variety within Burn Cycle, even when I go online and I look for videos to say, uh, okay, are you playing this mission with these robots? Probably not. I can't find examples of people playing the same game that I'm playing. So therefore, it's very hard for me to double check, am I doing this right? Does this integrate correctly? It's the nature of the beast. It's not a complaint, actually. It's just pointing out that you are gonna be swimming in the dark for a while through a tunnel of getting used to this game until you come out to light and you feel very confident with it. Like, I was not confident to teach other people until five or six games in. And then I was like, right, now I think I've got my head around it. And then, of course, things would come up in which special powers would go against each other and I'd be like, Ugh. I think we're just going to have to go make our mind up here. And as long as you've got forgiving and understanding play partners, but like, for example, would I ever bring Burn Cycle down to a London on board night and teach strangers? I don't think I would because I just don't have enough control over what's going to be going on and enough knowledge to be able to be, I'm fully confident on everything here. While there's all that variety to the powers and to the bots and to the missions... The puzzle changes, but the actions don't. So what you can actually do in your turn is very limited to just three different actions and different sequences of those three different actions. So it's a strange sort of variety within, like I say, the puzzle changes, but what I'm actually doing isn't changing from game to game. The game length. So yes, it can run very, very long. And they shouldn't have put 180 minutes as the top limit on here because that is not realistic at all. In fact, learning your first game and playing your first very simple map is going to take you 180 minutes. Yes, of course, that will get much, much quicker. It says up to 45 minutes here for a simple map. I imagine if you're very, very good at the game and you're very familiar with all the powers, you can do a map in 45 minutes. I don't think that's entirely unrealistic. 
but I don't think that should have been published. I think it should have been like 90 to 360 minutes. <laughs> it would have been something to give people more of an impression of how long Burn Cycle is going to take to play. The other issue with it is that the worse you are at it, the longer the game takes. Because there was always a way for me to get out of peril. When something unexpected happened, or I'd made a misjudgment, or a guard movement, I hadn't sort of programmed that into my head when I was programming the movements of what was going on. All it did was delay me. I never was in danger. So I'd just have to sort of run around in a circle or two to pull the guards away on the map where I needed them to be to allow me to get back to the thing I was trying to do in the first place. The biggest issue with that is because you're rolling action dice every time you do an action, most of the time you do an action, in order to see whether you're successful or not, I stopped taking risks on my actions because the punishment for not doing something was 45 minutes of waiting to do that thing again on occasion. And just running around and going back to where I was in the first place and going, right, I'm going to roll all my dice to do it this time because I don't want to spend 45 minutes running around to set this up again. Not everyone's going to face that because I wasn't a great player at it, but I never lost. I think as you become more confident, competent and confident, you will avoid those situations more, but it's still there. And I had this strange sense of attempting to get something done, but never feeling like I wasn't going to do it. It just took a long time to do it. I felt that Burn Cycle was lacking in big moments for me. Maybe it's an expectation that I've set in that it's got this huge physical presence, it's got this long play time, it's got all these powers. I expect there to be crescendos and highs and lows in action. The highs and lows really were, this is a crucial action, I must get done now. Well, just throw all your dice at it then, and you'll do it. And then the other two actions you can sort of, three actions or whatever, just mess around with. And therefore, I felt like I was playing on a very sort of low buzz all the way through. And it didn't bring me up and down and memorable moments, memorable games. They were all a bit missing. So it was always an interesting puzzle. It was a bit like doing, no. Because even when you do a jigsaw, you know, you can find that bit you've been looking for for ages. So you get the satisfaction of putting nine pieces together. I guess you do get that satisfaction of... Bink, 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 bink. Do that, do that, do that, do that. It's all come together. But because you can see it all beforehand, I don't know, it, it didn't scratch my particular itches. So it's a very impressive product, is Burn Cycle. There are huge amounts of gameplay. I can see it becoming a favourite game for certain people who like a certain style of game. And I'd understand that completely because I can see all the virtues within there. I'm not that sort of a gamer. It was too repetitive and too many loops in which I was like, oh, run around, run back again, come back through that door and get back to where I was a while ago. And that has pushed it down into Burn Cycle is only a 58 for me, which I'd still play it. I can see myself having fun with people playing it, but I don't need to own it anymore because it just did not stand up to repeated plays because of the repetitive nature of the gameplay. So there you go, that's Burn Cycle. Second game I'm going to go through today is Renature. Michael Kiesling and Wolfgang Kramer from Deep Print and Pegasus Spiel, two to four players, 60 minutes playtime. And Renature is a game of mean animal dominoes. There are 55 Donomo, I'm going to say Donomos all the way through this. Dominoes is one of those words for me. <laughs> Each player draws a certain amount depending upon the player count. And there are different animals in the game, and each combo of animal exists once. Every player has a hand of three available to them, 
and on your turn you're going to take one of your three face-up dominoes and place it on one of the paths which represent streams around the board and they surround planting areas of various sizes which correspond to how many points they're going to be worth once you've placed one of your dominoes and it, it must the animal must match up to another animal by the way that hence the domino thing you may plant in a space that's adjacent to the domino you have just laid you have plants available to you a limited number of them they are in values one to four it doesn't cost you anything to plant them by the way it just represents their strength in area control but also you have plants of your own color or the neutral color so everyone has plants of the neutral color and you'll see why that might become important if you surround a space there's a bonus token available for each space and you take it and it's got some hidden scoring on the bottom of it and that hidden scoring is absolutely pointless not pointless that's the wrong word to use it is some points but it's, it's very very little difference in the scoring i don't know why it's hidden and there's very little variety in how many they score it's a weird thing it's one of those things i put in that i just say okay great anyway you take the bonus token if you surround a space and no more dominoes can be placed adjacent to it then that space gets scored and like I say, the size of it corresponds to how many points are available to it for the colours that are in first and second place. However, two things. Firstly, neutral counts. So if neutral is in first place, no one scores the first place points. Or in second, no one counts them. Also, all ties are ignored. So it's quite possible that Rachel might have a value of nine in there, which would be high. And then we've all messed around and made neutral level nine in there. And then Lloyd's on level two and he takes all the points. Because if you're the only person who counts, you get first and second place. And that is very, very possible in this game. And you will be looking to stitch each other up. Hence me calling it mean animal dominoes. It's got this nice, bright, forestry animal artwork that lures you in. And then you start playing. And it's one of those games where people go, oh. And their faces dawn. And the meanness starts coming through. And they go, hold on, what happened here? the other things you can do is there are cloud actions you just have six clouds available so you have a very limited amount you can do with them but you can actually reclaim a plant a neutral one or your own color so you can use them again but any plants left on your board at the end of the game are going to cost you points so you are very much encouraged to play and you must get those neutral ones out so you may as well be mean with them right there's nothing I mean, you gotta get them out you may as well screw other people over why not you can also change the animal which is currently wild which allows you not to get stuck so much and then you can collect clouds there's like four available on the whole board you can collect them and they're worth a point at the end of the game or you can take actions with them they sometimes are relevant but mm. i will say with renature that i mentioned the production of the art production is very good okay the, the lovely wooden dominoes and the artwork is all fine but it doesn't do this game any favors in terms of promoting exactly what it is and exactly what the nature of the gameplay is it's not a family game although families could play it there's more to it than that and even if they insisted on keeping with this theme of renature if they put like a darker forest theme on it a sort of meaner animals and this sort of fight between plants and animals for to get control of the forest area that would have led you down the right path and i think more people who would be interested in the gameplay would have been interested in picking it up if they had gone that way the gameplay is very quick. The group has to balance off. You have to watch what each other are doing. You can't let one person get loads of spawny, cheap areas. But the number of plants is limited. So you can't be in everywhere and you can't stop everyone. You are relying a bit on, I'm going to go for points over here at the risk of hoping someone else will stop that person over there. It can be swingy in areas. 
like I say, if someone invests heavily in an area to score lots of points, everyone can then just neutral, neutral, neutral in there and take them out of the action. And it's hard because your investment of your large plants, you don't have many, especially in a four-player game, but even in a three-player game. But it's controlled swingy. And like I say, every time that you target someone else, it's an opportunity missed for you to score points. Renature has flown under the radar. It was in shrink in my collection for a long time before Lloyd got it out and said, we need to play this, and we did. And it's been a hit amongst the group. It's rock solid. It's got gameplay to appeal to a much wider audience than I think have tried it so far. If it was better packaged and marketed, I think it could have been a bit of a hit. And I would suggest if you get a chance, give Renature a try. And after seven games of it, I give Renature a 73, which is a that's a good score. Third game up this time round is Luna Capital from Jose Ramon Palacios from Devere Games, a publisher that's absolutely on the up for one to four players taking around 45 minutes to play. Luna Capital is a card and tile drafting game in which players are looking to create their own completely separate from else's settlements on the moon in order to attract people to live in your settlement in order to score the most points by the end of the three rounds. Cards that you draw have got grids on them, which are spaces for the tiles to go into. When you play a card out, and you must do this once a turn, there are three possible rows you can create, and the cards within those rows must be sequential in number, because they are all numbered from 1 to 10. The way you get these cards on the tiles is that you draft one card, and the tiles which are related to it, from a set of four sets on each of your turns. Now, I said there's three rounds. Within the three rounds, there's four sort of mini rounds. I've got to get better words for this. But basically, on the first draft, there's one tile and one card for each card. On the second draft, there's two tiles for each card, then three tiles for each card, then four tiles for each card. And then we reset again, and we go back to one tile on each card. So you get what you're doing. You're having 12 drafts over the course of the whole game. The tiles that you're drafting, you put them in on the cards. And like I say, you play one card a turn, Cards have got various amounts of spots available on them. They might have meteors or block spaces, double spaces, but space is not limitless. So you are having to be smart about what you do because a lot of the tiles score for adjacency either for being in sets next to each other or you get tiles that score for having certain things directly around them in the eight or ten spaces, depending on how the layout has worked out. The game plays very quick. The rulebook is fine. It's decent. The whole game is well made. They've done some nice touches with things that are supposed to hold the tiles for you. They don't really work that well, but it's a nice touch and they've tried it. And they've tried to push the sort of lunar thought into it and sort of retro sci-fi little touches to give it a little hint of theme that don't really exist in the play. But it all makes sense. However, in that production, the palette is very, very dark grey. And the icons are tiny. And some of the icons are very, very similar to each other. And I mean like small differences on an icon within a small icon, within a small bit of art on a small tile. So yeah, we're going through four levels down to see, oh, that's the difference in these things? Woo! Okay. It's fine for where I usually play board games because I've got an industrial light I can turn on and my eyesight close up is pretty good. But it's a drafting game. And if you don't have perfect conditions or if your eyesight is not that hot it's very hard to tell what others are doing and what they're after and there are too many varieties of similar tiles that score for stuff 
So you've got these greenhouses that people want sets of, but it's very hard to tell what the greenhouse they have. Or these are production facilities. There's three different production facilities, and the only difference is a very, very small shape on the tile. And they can be scored by things adjacent to them, but they score for themselves and the biggest set. And trying to work out what other people are prioritising is hard just because of the production and the look. And all right, you might say that's only a production issue, but this is a drafting game. And the whole point of a drafting game is that I know what you want and I know what I want, and then I'm able to make a judgment as to what it's worth taking. The stuff that I want and the stuff that you want as well, and whether it's worth me screwing you over to lose a few points. If I can't tell it at a glance when I'm looking around and everything's very small and there's 20 different ways in which tiles score then you're kind of taking some of the magic of a draft away from me. As much as the mechanisms within themselves all work well, I'm just playing a solitaire game. And then we look up at each other at the end and go, what did you score? Did you score? Oh, you got them. Oh, you had, you had a load of them, did you? Oh, I, had one. I had some of these. Oh, you had those. So if you prefer a more solitaire tile layout, I think you're going to enjoy this a lot. I felt it was a game of missed opportunities. There's objectives you can score at the end of each of those, like three bigger rounds I'd, I'd still need better words they, they all seem super easy people just tend to get them Lunar Capital is a pleasant game but it's forgettable I think there are production errors I think it needs a more focused scoring without these lots and lots and lots of different possibilities it's worth a tinkle in good lighting in good company for 45 minutes of solving your own little solitaire puzzle play it once or twice you'll be done with it but it's cool so I gave Lunar Capital a 60 out of 100. The next game up is another game that's been dragged out of my big pile of unplayed games in Shrink. And I got to play it with some wizened wizards of gaming a lovely weekend away recently. And I have been playing the heck out of it since they taught it to me. It's Babylonia by Rainer Knizia, Ludanova Games, two to four players, 60 minutes long. There is a map split up into three areas by the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Funny enough, we played this after playing Tigris and Euphrates for the first time in a long time. I came last. It is one of my favourite games. And I came last. I'll say that again. Brutal. Anyway, Babylonia. It's about laying counters onto this map. And you're looking to surround and possibly claim cities, farms and ziggurats, which are laid out at the beginning of the game. Each player gets 30 tiles, there are 12 farmers in there, and there are six each of three different types of nobles, and you're going to draw a hand of five, and from those you're going to choose to play either any two tiles or three or more farmers. And when you choose to play, you can play anywhere on the board, apart from you can't play directly onto farms. We'll get to how you take farms in a second. Once you've played, you're usually two tiles, but sometimes three or more farmers, you're going to check to see if any scoring has been triggered. Now, I said the Tigris and Euphrates rivers are on the board. They separate areas. You can go on them, but you have to go face down, which affects farmer play, but anyway, you can. They can be adjacent to cities. However, a city is completed when only the land spaces around it have been filled up. That is an edge case. Don't worry about it too much. Once you surround a city on land, you're going to score the cities. Now, the first thing is, every noble, which is a symbol that matches the symbols on the city, which is linked by counters of that player's colour to that city, is going to score two points. Try and dig into that a little bit. Each of the cities have got one, two or three symbols on, which match the symbols on your nobles. And what you're trying to do is, let's say there were 
three cities which were near each other and they all had stars on them. If I can get a group of star nobles down, which connect up to them, let's say I've got four nobles down, each time one of those cities is surrounded, I'm going to score eight points. And that is a lovely tactic and everyone else is going to stop me from doing it. And if you can get chains that go right across, your star nobles might be miles away. But if you've been smart enough to get a chain across to another city, you're going to score them points again for that, just for being there. It doesn't matter if you surround the city, it doesn't matter if you've got the most nobles around that city it doesn't matter as long as you're connected to it you'll score those points then however whoever has got the majority of markers around this city you count those in rivers but you don't need to be there again i'll just keep going about an edge case and be a bit of a weirdo about that they get to take that city why do you want to take a city because every city you have in front of you will score you one point every time any city is taken for farms, there are two different types of farms, but to go on them, you must first have a counter adjacent to them. So this is the one time you cannot drop into anywhere on the board. You must go adjacent and then onto it. Some of them have just straight up points, five, six, or seven. Some of them have got points per city claimed, which is a nice sort of teetering point there at which they become very valuable once there's like 12 cities claimed by all the players in the game, especially they're more valuable in higher player counts. For ziggurats... Every time you go adjacent to a zig, you get one point for every ziggurat that you are adjacent to anywhere on the board. So if I go adjacent to my fifth one, that putting down is just worth five points by itself. However, once a ziggurat gets surrounded, whoever's got the majority around it gets to choose one of the seven special powers available in the game. Going from straight up points to another action, to the ability to play more tiles, to be able to parachute directly onto farms, and various different things that let you just break the rules in a slightly different way. The size of the player area adjusts to those different player counts. You only play with the, the right-hand side of the board, depending on how I was looking at it. <laughs> if it's two players, you play with the middle and left. If you're playing with three players and the whole lot, you're playing with four players. And having played in all the different player counts, the game adjusts very much to them. I have to say that playing with four was absolutely the best way to play. Three is cool, two works, but it's super quick. It's like a 20-minute game in and out, very zero sum, and <laughs> it depends how aggressive you want to be. It's hard to completely block someone off when it's just a two-player. They can usually get a little way around unless you're really hammering on top of each other all the time, which can happen and could be quite funny. It's a real balance. Um, we said this in Renature, and in Babylonia, it's even more, because usually you're only playing down two tiles. There's always something productive you can do. There's always something you're looking at going, do you know what, if I connect that to that city, if I put these two in here, next time I might connect that city and that's going to cut that all up. Or, oh, if I put those two around that ziggurat, that's going to be points, and I get that special power. It's a choice between positive things you want to do, and there's always plenty of them. However, if you're only playing positively, you may well be allowing someone to run away and put together this sort of big band across the board that just connects too many cities and scores them too many points and does too many good things. So you have to be very aware of other players' play. And that decision between doing it for me or stopping it for you or the sweet spot, doing both, is absolutely crucial. And you're there going, oh! Because even every time you do something good, you're giving up the opportunity to do the other three good things you could have done. And you're deciding which of them it is. And it's a very simple thing. You're just putting two, three, four maybe counters on the board. But there are so many possibilities, especially early on. That it, whew, your mind is blowing. My mind was blowing anyway. I, I did really terribly in my first game of it, let me tell you. 
It's very simple to learn. It's very simple to play. Endless variety with the different setups because cities will group in different ways because the farm cities share the same spot so you randomize it and you put them out and every time you look at the board you're like oh okay there's loads of them over there but there's loads of these over there and oh, hold on the cities are in two clumps i oh, know there's a big band of them oh no they're separated all over the place ah! and every time you look at it you're looking at it going okay where am i going to go and you make a decision and then someone else goes there and you're like ah, oh, where am i going to go now it's got that classic feel of Every single game is different, and every single game is engaged, and every single game I'm playing, and I'm making decisions, I'm looking at what other people are doing, and I'm reading into what their intentions are, and I'm reacting to that, and we're all playing together. Babylonia, despite being only three years old, is already a classic twist, taking some parts of Samurai and some parts of Blue Lagoon, smooching them together. It's a hit with my gamer friends. It's been a big hit with my family, which I'm very happy about. That simple gameplay helped because they just want to get in and play games. They don't want to be sitting there for 20 minutes getting rules from me. I want to play it again and again and again. And if I were to rewrite it, Babylonia would certainly be in my top 100. This has been just a brilliant experience learning and playing it. And Babylonia currently has got an 88 and rising from me. Next up is another... Simple to learn, simple to play, but even quicker game. It's Silver and Gold, designed by Phil Walker-Harding from Nürnberger Spielkarten Verlag and Pandasaurus Games. Two to four players are taking about 20 minutes to play. It is a flip and write game. It is dawning on me that I very much prefer flip and writes to roll and writes, just due to the fact that you've got that little ability to look ahead and see what may be coming up and a bit more control and therefore, you can have a tiny bit more planning. And you know that I like to have a little bit of a plan, a bit of a structure, you know, that's my thing. Everyone is going to have a map of two islands in front of them. You draft two from four. Very simple maps. They have eight to 14 spaces on them. They're squares, and they're all linked together in a square. Some sort of strange shape. There's lots of different shapes in there. And they are worth eight to 14 points each, depending on how many spaces are on there. There is a deck of eight polyomino cards and the shapes that are on those eight cards are laid out for you on the sort of the central little cards just a little card game comes a little box so you can see what's going to come up on this round but only seven of them are going to get played in each of the four rounds when a card is flipped over everyone looks at the shape and fills that shape out on one of their islands if they can't they just cross off one space if you complete an island that's going to be scored those number of points for you at the end of the game you take another island and so on as we go through the four rounds now there are a couple of little twists in there as you might expect on your islands there are spaces that have crosses in when you cross off a cross you can cross off another space which helps you get out of that awkward shapes because a lot of the islands are deliberately awkward there are coins you can cross off when you collect four coins you score a certain number of points the number of points you score reduces depending on how many coins have been collected overall i guess that's an attempt at the theme of silver and gold i don't know there are palm trees that score points depending on how many palm trees are in the offer which you might want to time and crucially some cards offer bonuses for having completed cards of a different colour. So I may have completed a bunch of green cards, but then an orange island is available, which gives me bonuses for my completed green cards. Suddenly that orange island is very valuable to me. And I'm going to want to finish an island and draft that very quickly before someone else can get in and nab it off me. I mentioned the islands come in lots of awkward shapes. 
It requires a little bit of planning ahead, a little bit of leaving spaces available to you. Particularly the T-shape and the square can be very hard to fit in and you want to know if they've come out this round or they haven't. And how, have I got space to be able to put them into and not wasting my time? Holding back a little bit on completion, like I say, or jumping ahead on completion or having one ready to complete so that if the perfect island comes up you can grab it these are listen these are small things these are like every 30 seconds you'll change your mind but there's just that little bit of thought that little bit of planning that little bit hold on if i do that then i think the square's left in these last three cards and if i can't put the square in there's four spaces i haven't crossed if i cross one so let's not do that and block that square off let's do it over here on this card because i think that might come out you know, just a little, a little bit. And then it's not random. It's not like, well, it might come out, it might not come out on the dice. It's it's two and three going to come out, so I better plan for it. It's quick. It's groany when you've planned poorly, when you've done something wrong, someone beats you to the coins. It's incredibly fast to teach. It's just the right amount of thinking to engage you in playing the game while you're still chatting and having a good time, but you are actually thinking a bit rather than just brainless nonsense. I think for what it is, very quick, simple, quick to teach, small game, it's very good. And silver and gold gets a 77 from me. The penultimate game I'm going to cover this time around is Scout from K. Kajino, published internationally by Oink Games, two to five players, taking around 15 minutes to play. Although I think that for a full game, it might take a bit longer. I guess it's player count dependent. This was nominated for the Spiel des Jahres for 2022, or even though it's a 2019 game, because like I say, Oink have brought it to international attention and spread it out, so that's why it was valid for this year. So let's have a look at it. It's been nominated for that prestigious, if liked, prize. It's a ladder climbing card game. It's not a trick taker. It's a ladder climbing, meaning that there will be one active set of cards in play at any time, and you must play a higher combination of that set of cards if you wish to play cards out of your hand. The goal being to play all of the cards out of your hand over the course of the game. However, if you're unable to play a higher combination, let's say, for example, player to my right of me, Ellie has got three tens out, and I haven't got anything in my hand that beats three tens, I get to take one of the cards from her. When I play cards from my hand, I cannot ever shuffle them round and change the order they're in. So I can only play them in the order they already are in my hand. So that's something for me to consider. When I take cards, there are two options. I can take it as, let's use the three tens example, as the 10. But each of those tens will have another number on the other side of them. And I can choose to turn it upside down. And then I will fit that card somewhere into my hand, attempting to make better combinations. So that when it comes around to me again, I should hopefully be able to play cards out of my hand. Unless Ellie puts down another great combination again, in which case I will be screwed and I'll have to pick up one of her new combination. And her combination will stay in play until someone can beat it, in which case they take her cards, however many are remaining, and they become scoring cards to them. Every card you're taken at the end of a round is worth one point. Every card left in your hand at the end of a round is minus one point to you. Very possible to score negative points. And in fact, I might only be able to score negative points. I'm not sure I've ever proven otherwise in my few games of scout that sounds fine and it is fine and it's a game i will play and time will pass and things will happen and we will have a laugh but there is the lack of control versus control for me is way 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 off i get this hand of cards at the beginning of the game you have an option because you look at them one way round and then you can completely turn them all upside down and you can take one of the two ways 
And that sets the majority of your play. The other huge factor is how well the players on your right are playing or how well the cards they got dealt worked or the cards they can pick up work with what they've been dealt. Because if Ellie constantly is playing high combos, I've got equally as well as her, equally good hand, and I can never get them out because she's got them in play first. Other way around, if two or three players to my right are playing well and the one or two players to my right can never get them out, I'm always getting weak combinations to me so I can always play and pick up cards. Now, you play this over multiple hands in order to try and even that out. And yet, in any one hand, I don't feel like I'm particularly in much control as to what's going on with my game. So, it leaves me scratching my head a little bit. There's a little game that I reviewed relatively recently, which had the same idea that you take cards and you put them in your hand and you can only play them in the order in your hand. But it was called Photograph Wind the Film. And it had that one mechanism that every time each... Once around, you could take any card from the left-hand side of your hand and move it forward to the right as many as you wanted to. That one mechanism gave you a feeling of control and made it feel like, oh, I'm not forced to play rubbish. I'm not forced by what I've been drawn. I'm not forced by bad luck. I can, in fact, just take a little bit. And, and like, if I've got two nines next to each other, but the other nine that I've got is miles away with nothing next to it does any good, I've got to play all the cards in between out. I've got no way of getting it. I know I'm talking about making this game different. If I had that wind the film capability to move that nine across to those nines, maybe every time I take a card, I also get to do a wind. Man, now I feel a little bit in control. I'm still at the mercy of cards. I'm still at the mercy of what comes around to me. I'm still at the mercy of what everyone else is doing. But I feel like I have a little bit more control. In Scout, I just didn't have control. It, it happens. And... I mean, you play it in good company and have a good time and you can chat and you can laugh. This is not a bloody Shara's nominee for me. Did I hate it? No, I didn't hate it. It was too inoffensive to hate. It was just okay. It's a 51. Scout. I just don't understand the fuss. The final game for this episode is Messina 1347, designed by Raul Fernandez Aparicio and Vladimir Sushi. From Delicious and Rio Grande Games is for one to four players and takes about 120 minutes to play. We are firmly in Euroland here. It's a game named after a European city. Come on. This is played over six rounds, in which players will compete to evacuate citizens from the city of Messina, away from the Black Death, to their own country estates, putting them to work, be they ill or not, to produce resources, and then at the end of those, towards the fifth or sixth round, you're going to be looking to bring citizens back into the city and rebuild the city to score the majority of your points. There's a action selection thing here, which is very worker placement adjacent. I don't know if it's actually worker placement or not. Uh, someone who cares about this definition is going to tell me. There's, there's meeples basically in a city of hexes and you can move your meeple around, but only one meeple could take an action in a hex on any one turn. When you take actions, you collect resources or you collect citizens and you take them out to your estate and you put them into sick huts or into other areas of your estate and you can use fire to burn rats and if you don't, you're going to get negative points because you're taking ill citizens rather than non-ill ones. Once you've got them on your estate, they progress through these sickness huts and give you little things and they become healthy and then you can put them to work in workshops which you can build, which will give you more resources, different ways of doing things. And there's also an estate area, which is like a little map with three different areas in it. 
and you've got overseers which fire different actions you can move around as they move around they can trigger the citizens you've put to work in your estate to give you bonuses of resources and whatever it might be that you want to get but like i say the big point moves come towards the end when you put citizens back into the town they no longer can make resources for you but towards the end of the game you don't care as much and you have to spend lots of resources to rebuild these buildings and claim them and each hex can only be rebuilt once i really like the idea of the urban flow of people of the taking them out and putting them back in again and preparing and i like the idea that you're this sort of benevolent nobility who's looking to do their best and realizes that if they act now Although there's going to be a bad time, there's going to be fire and plague in the city, if we plan ahead, once we've got that under control, we can move back in and rebuild and make things better again. I actually think that's a very nice idea. Within that idea, I'm not quite sure why all the bonuses and actions and the production is quite so granular and fiddly. I don't quite know why there's this separate little estate map with three separate systems on there with three separate overseers you move around which can trigger in different ways and different things and they're all going to give you basically the same sort of stuff. You know, there's a limited number of resources in the game. There's wood and whatever there is. And I wish that they'd focused on the heart and the rhythm of the game rather than breaking up the rhythm by making you make lots of tiny little moves and decisions I'll get one of those here one of those there and two of those there it extends the length of the game and isn't giving me much back and is diluting what the fun part was for me the movement in the city we can block each other off can be annoying and can be interesting but they've also mitigated that in that you can pay to do big moves so that you go into a net a neighborhood and you're like right great because i want to do this move this turn and then one away i'll do this move and then two away i'll do that move and you're kind of watching what the player near you is doing and then suddenly someone comes from miles away and pays to move across the city and jump into the space you're planning for you're like that's annoying but i can always move and jump across to somewhere else and get the thing i want more or less it's just going to cost me more so it doesn't feel restrictive enough or planable enough to be really fun, it's just like a sort of, ah, oh, you went there, I meant to go there. Okay, let me look around again. I'm going to go there. It becomes more competitive at the end when you're looking to rebuild because each hex can be rebuilt once. And yet still, there's a lot of mitigations and a lot of the rebuilds are sort of, sort of generic. Like, you need some wood, you need some of this, you need some of that. I keep talking wood. That's about the only reason I can remember in there. Of course, it's got wood. <laughs> and I can always find somewhere to rebuild. And I'm not rebuilding like enough that you blocking me off oh now suddenly i can't spend these i'll find something to do there's there's a way in which i'll twist this work this move that overseer get two of them rather than one of them but yeah the whole overseer thing you give yourself options so when it moves you're like well okay let me look mm, all right no i no longer need that i no need that so i'll trigger that worker to get that because there's so many little things in place it's, i don't think i'm explaining this very well this i'm never stuck i never feel like it's hard work I never feel like, oh no, you've outplayed me there. I always feel like, well, it doesn't matter. I'll just use this bonus and, and, and take that action and now I've got what I would have got from there anyway, just for a slightly different way. And that doesn't make for a very interesting game. I know what my end goal is. I know how I'll score most points. What I felt like is that you're making me spend an hour extra doing this to just very granularly collect all the things I need when that hour was really wasted time. 
if you just made the resource production easier and had confidence to make this a quicker game, a shorter game in which you go, right, it's four rounds long, I'm going here and here and setting this up and setting that up, and it doesn't take three turns for that to work through a heart. It's going, it's producing this, it's producing this, that's what you're getting. Okay, now I can make a plan back in there and I'm being more specific in what I'm doing. And I'm not getting lots of everything, which in the end will be three this way and two that way and one that way, and it doesn't really matter. I really think it would have worked with one extraction phase where you take people out of the city and then one replacement phase where you put them back in again. There's areas like with the docks that no one ever goes to. Don't interact with. It's not worth it. You're in the middle of nowhere. You're not getting enough stuff and you're going to get Black Death. There's bits that just are extraneous and it feels like we have to throw four more mechanisms at a lot of these Euro games than they really need. And we're not making decisions. We're just doing paperwork. I think it's a nice idea that got itself bogged down in that idea that we have to have loads and loads of mechanisms in every Euro game that we make. And it got bogged down in sensibilities that don't suit the original scope of the game or the depth of the game, which is actually quite shallow. Don't make me wade through five different mechanisms when I'm actually making very shallow decisions all the way through. It feels like it's got a middle film thrown into the middle of a trilogy that's got a problem that's just getting you from the start game to the end game. I would love to have seen it streamlined and made more perilous. And if you'd asked me to rate Messina 1347 after one game, I'd have rated it quite highly. It would have been high 60, 70, something like that. I'd have been like, yes, decent year, have fun. What I found, and this may be a self-fulfilling prophecy, is as I considered my second play of it, I was always putting it off and I was always reluctant to play it again. And then when it came around to having that second play, I felt like I was on Groundhog Day. And that's when I really started to feel like the game was creaking because I was doing exactly the same things as the first game in different places in the city, in different workshops, in different places on my estate, but they all just gave me the same things that I was getting the first time round. And then I was going back and going, right, I'm going to rebuild on this turn. I haven't really seen what's available. What's available? Oh, yeah, I can do that. Boom, it's done. And I was not engaged in any way, and it just fell off a cliff. Have some confidence in your designs, people. Have some confidence to streamline them and make them 60 to 75 minute games that really punch and really work on that original idea and don't have to have all this trudge thrown on top. Messina 1347, in the end, for me, gets a 43. And there you go. There are seven games reviewed this time around. Thank you so much for joining me. Next time around, hopefully we'll have a bunch more reviews before we're heading into soon very soon we're going to have our review of 2021 we have plenty of time to play all those games now the game pit is a proud member of the dice tower network head to dicetower.com for loads of gaming goodness and the dice tower network which is full of fantastic gaming podcasts if you want to follow what we're up to we are active on twitter and you'll find that Eleanor has taken over our Instagram and suddenly that is more active again and she's posted some interesting stuff over there and as always head to our board game geek guild it's been my pleasure. I'm Ronan. Thank you very much for joining me. And I'll catch you next time on the Game Pit. Music by E. Boy, boy, boy.